0: We thought last week's show was big, this one is even bigger. An absolutely massive guest to join us here on Breakpoint Podcast today. It is truly the biggest one that we've had on the show. We've got our Benoit of the week. A little bit of news, but a lot of fun in between. This is Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febbo here with you, and joining me, as always, is one of the best tennis analysts in the game, and it's Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you?
1: Going very well indeed, Val. pop this episode. It's another one I've been, been looking forward to for pretty much the whole week but some um, the time has finally arrived and uh, well we can't wait to share what we've uh, what we've done um, with uh, with our listeners uh, it's a very very big name as you said and a good chat as well I think we did a really good job with it but um yeah body delighted to have the show here and to uh, see a face on my screen we uh, had a couple of problems with zoom before but yeah. got there in the end and um, yeah even before that uh, yeah I'll tell you what the week really has flown past there hasn't been a whole lot of tennis news but um of all things, I've been occupying myself with a bit of painting, which has been uh, been interesting. It's not something I
0: thought I'd be doing, but uh, here we are. I don't know. I don't know how you've done that. To be quite honest, I really don't. I, I absolutely cannot stand paint. I'm, I'm not a big, I'm not a big household chores man. I don't think anybody is. But <laughs> I there's a few things that I don't mind doing. Like I'll do the dishwasher. I don't mind cleaning the bathrooms if I have to do it. But vacuuming is the one that makes <laughs> me want, want to it, <laughs> make like I if I could snap the vacuum when I was doing, when I'm doing it, that's, that's what it makes me want to do. I just, I hate it. I don't mind doing it in like sort of open spaces, but if you're doing it and try and navigate yourself around beds and, and all, all upstairs around bathrooms and toilets and, and tables and desks, and it just makes me want to absolutely rage because you can't get it through certain spaces. You have to really tug on it. And it just, it, uh, I, I don't want to think mm-hmm. about it because I'm going to get PTSD and I'm going to go and break the vacuum <laughs> during the podcast. So let, let's not do that. But you did mention the big guest and so did I. And it, it was it was an amazing chat, but absolutely privileged. And you said it on the show last week that we're going to duck off because we want to try and make sure that this is done well. Mm-hmm. We ended up tracking this person down and her name is Daniela Hontakova, former world number five. And we've got her on the show today and we, we recorded the chat last week and... It was such a wonderful chat. I can't wait for everybody to hear it because it was just so it was so good to get an insight into the career of someone that's been so high in the world and and won some really big titles and been on some of the biggest tennis stages. The, the, the Fed Cup winner, um, Olympian, uh, Grand Slam semi finalist has won all four mixed doubles Grand Slams. So it, it was mm-hmm. just so good to have someone like that on the show and to hear her her insights, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was terrific, and of course, she's moved into a bit of a media role now um, as well. She's done a bit of work with ESPN and also uh, Amazon Prime, which is uh, an interesting one—a bit of, um, I suppose, a relatively new venture there when it comes to um, comes to media, and, and certainly tennis. And uh, Danielle's got her own show as well—the Real DNA, which we'll talk to her about. But um, we're cracking into, into some uh, some interesting issues that have been uh, sort of at the forefront of the. Of the tennis worlds in the last little while there's been a bit to talk about but um, yeah it was really interesting to get her thoughts on um on the on the proposed um or the floated idea of an ATP wta merger we won't reveal what she said just yet um, but we will chat about that maybe after the interview but um yeah to get her thoughts on it was really interesting because uh you know we've had uh i guess we've heard what the some of the current players think um a lot of them, admittedly, I mean, I don't know about you, Val, but um, a lot of what I've sort of seen and read from this issue has been uh, from a lot of uh, a lot of the men. We've seen Roger Federer; he really put this back into the, um, I suppose, back into the public arena. Um, Andy Murray has told us his thoughts. Rafael yeah. Nadal, we've heard from Nick Kyrgios, um, but I guess from what I've seen, I haven't really sort of he- uh, heard or seen a lot from a lot of the women. So um, it's it's been interesting to, uh, to hear Daniela's. Thoughts uh, on it, and of course, as we know, Billie Jean King has been mm. a, an advocate of, of this really for half a century almost. So, um, yeah, it was good to get her thoughts on that, and um, yeah, as uh, I guess alongside that, um, a lot of the stories that Daniela had to had to tell about her career were really fascinating as well.
0: Yeah, it was, and it was good to hear her thoughts, as you said. Like we we've seen, like we saw a lot of the, the female players uh, respond to Federer's tweet, but very briefly. Like Halep just said yes, and Serena. Um, was more yeah. angry at the fact that it, apparently it was confidential, which you wouldn't f- expect anything less from Serena. Something sort of smart alecky, um, from what, I, from, what from what I've from what I've seen. But we all know my thoughts on Serena, and after after what happened with the 2018 U.S. Open final, I still can't forget that. So let's let's move on because um, I will get angry about that again. But um, no, it's no, nah, it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm still not sure. Like uh, uh, the discussion we had about it last week, I'm still very, very much of those opinions that um, it probably doesn't need to happen now, but it's a good idea in the long run. I think there's a lot of water that needs to go under the bridge for for that merger to go ahead. But I'm not th- who's not to say that it can't happen in the future. But yeah, I think um, I think it was really good to hear what Daniela had to say. Fingers crossed that you guys enjoy the chat. But Joel, you said you said you've been painting now yes <laughs> how 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 long is this taking my friend
1: pardon paint Pain... yeah
0: it, it it really is now like if you with painting what have you had to paint and and how long has this taken because i've been seeing snapchats <laughs> on my inbox every day about your about you painting the house and i just what have you been doing and how why is this taken so long
1: I've been, been taking some walls around the house with, uh, with, with Dad. I uh, was kind of bored, so I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll help you out, that. Um, but, um, yeah, it's taken a, taken a few days, a couple of, uh, couple of coats we've, we've had to do, which, um, you know, always sort of adds to the, the length of time. But, um, you know, it certainly made the, the time go faster. It's been good for, you know, to sort of kill some time um, in isolation. But I, I'll tell you what, though, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the blisters that I've got on my hands, um, particularly on my right hand, which is my, uh, my forehand, um, that I developed um, over time playing tennis, um, a lot of them resurfaced after holding the paintbrush in a certain way for, for so long. And uh, it's actually quite painful, to be honest. So sort of,
0: yeah, you get the calluses one, uh,
1: and it's, it doesn't yeah, I've help. Sort of got one... Yeah, I've sort of got one like right up the, right down the bottom of uh, of of my of my middle finger, <laughs> um, and also a couple on the sides of my fingers, um, and uh, it's a bit unsightly. But uh, yeah, so yeah, wear some sort of, gloves. Uh, resurfaced a bit. Yeah, well, even uh, I've been wearing some, I've uh, been wearing some gloves, but um, yeah, you still sort of feel it, but. Um, yeah, I guess in know way it's somewhat relatable to tennis because my hands are sore. Well,
0: very. And, uh, so on my legs. But, uh, very true. Very true. But look, you mentioned yeah. the boredom stuff, and this is what I wanted to sort of tie it in with. Um, Naomi Osaka said on Twitter that she's been watching a lot of old tennis videos on YouTube because obviously there's yeah. no- nothing else to do. Um, and through she's been boredom. In value on Twitter lately, actually? Yeah, through through boredom, I've done the exact same thing. So she's she's <laughs> um she's exactly right, and I, I was wondering what if you if you've been watching a lot of tennis videos on YouTube and some of the old highlights because I definitely have been but I was wondering if there's any sort of matches that you like to go back to and like to like to watch in your past time that you know you might be bored and then you know how you get lost in those YouTube trains where one video finishes yeah. and you scroll down and then something else happens and then you watch that and for the next 10 minutes then there's another video and three hours later, you're still doing it. So is there anything that mm. comes to mind that you like to watch and re-watch when it comes to tennis?
1: Uh, no, not really. I mean, a few weeks ago um, on uh, Channel 9, for people here in Australia would know uh, would know uh, Channel 9 are the current post-broadcaster of the Australian Open. They've got, obviously, all the rights to the, uh, the old footage now um, as well. But uh, there was a replay not long ago of, uh, I think it was the 2012 Australian Open final. Um, and we all know just how amazing match that was and um, I guess that was pretty engrossing. that um, you know no matter no matter how uh, how far we go from that match it's still it just uh, it still grips you every time but um I guess uh, the great thing is that um, tennis TV—they've been uh, really tuning out that old content. And, um, I know you sent me a clip before Val of—I uh, think it was eight minutes of Roger Federer. So eight and um, a half minutes of uh, Roger Federer. Eight and a half minutes of, of Roger Federer. So I can tell yeah. all the listeners out there that Val was uh, very, uh, very much um, in the midst of uh, his phone screen there. And, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of old stuff to, to really get into. And speaking of Naomi Osaka, one of the other things that she put out there—I think she actually may have deleted this tweet. I don't, I don't know why, but. Um, Ends up screenshotting it and running it uh, on our social breakpoint um, podcast, of course, on Facebook, yep, breakpoint pod on Instagram and Twitter as well. And she said, um, Has anyone tried that jumping forehand that Nick Kyrgios does? And she said, How does he get it in? <laughs> it's such a weird shot. And well, she's right, it is a weird shot. Yep. Um, can't say I tried that in the last little while, but I have tried that. Um, I have tried that when uh, my local tennis club was still open. And I yep. um, can safely say that when I tried it, Um, not only did I miss the court, I'm pretty sure I actually put it outside and the ball landed on someone's car. So if that person is listening, I'm sorry. God, Um, only you would do that. I've I've only, I've
0: only attempted that in table tennis and it did go in. So I'll take that. But yeah, I think if I tried it on a tennis court, um, it would go horribly, horribly wrong. You might've, it might've landed on a car for you. Mine would land on a car and break something. Surely. That just knowing my life, um, but yeah, no, it's uh, I, I don't know how he does it, but Nick Curios is an enigma in so many ways. He plays some unbelievable shots, and some of the highlights that you do tend to watch are of are that of Nick Curios and uh, Roger Federer, as you said, eight and a half minutes. If you want to get to tennis TV, please do because oh my god, it's just beautiful. And even in- Leighton, yeah, tell you what, um, on
1: the topic of, uh, of, of Nick Curios and the jumping forehand. Probably last year, I was I uh, was playing uh, playing in my um, local tennis competition, and um, I can't remember at what point of, of the night it was, but uh, my one of my teammates, my great mate Stuart, um, in the forehand corner, he uh, he just out of nowhere just attempts attempts a at jumping forehand, yeah. and just creams it down the line. It was the best shot I've ever seen from <laughs> from someone in my uh, sort of um, bracket of you know. Um, Tennis pizza raiders. So, um, it was. I'll tell you what. If if you've ever nailed one of those shots, it is an amazing
0: feeling. Well, if you have nailed one of those shots and do have video footage of it, please send it through to us, and we'll post it on Twitter, um, or yeah, our yeah, Instagram yeah. pages. So at uh, Twitter is at Breakpoint Pod. Uh, Instagram is at Breakpoint Podcast, and also Facebook is at uh, at Breakpoint Pod. One or just search Breakpoint Podcast and we'll be there. So send those through if you do have the footage because we'd love to see it and we will post them on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook if you do have them. Um, we love to see all of your shots. So, yeah, please do give us a follow and a subscription as well on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as well. Now, Joel, there has been one tiny little flicker of news this week. There hasn't really been much going on in the tennis world this week. There was some sort of... There was the Mutual Madrid Open um, Virtual Tennis Pro, which Andy Murray and Kiki Burton's won. Um, There's also some little close behind closed doors tournament in Germany for prize money that's been played and Dustin Brown's been a part of that, but no other real massive names but I think the big the biggest little flicker of news that we had was the US Open and the USTA statement about um, the tournament actually going ahead and going ahead. Uh, on a certain day or on the uh, on the current calendar so they've said that at the moment that is what's going to happen and that's where they' that's still what they're looking at at the moment they're still they're willing to play the tournament behind closed doors um, but moving the dates and location of the tournament has been discussed but isn't at the Forefront of their minds so th- there's been a couple of reports that the tournament may be moved to Indian wells but at this stage they're Mm. saying that that's not going to happen so what are your thoughts on on the US Open at the moment and because at at this stage that is the next Grand Slam to take place in late August early September so it's it's something that I guess we we never usually think about at this time of the year but now because it is the next slam that's kind of at the forefront of Mm. our minds
1: yeah well I mean I I really can't I still can't see the US Open um going ahead really yeah, at the don't. moment, um, I, I guess just when you look at the at the case numbers in the US, they just continue to decline um, and my big fear for that part of the world, and obviously we know that um, New York City um, or New York generally, New York State has really been um, the epicentre of COVID-19 um, in America, which of course is the home of the US Open. So um, at the moment it's pretty tough to see the um, the, the borders reopening and players actually being allowed to come in, yep. uh, which is the first the first big hurdle, um, and then also whether they can slow the spread and, and flatten the curve in in New York, which I'm really sort of struggling to believe will happen, especially when you've got, um, you know, such a firebrand president like like uh, Donald Trump, who I, I think I think the US are, are reopening far too early. Obviously, we've seen a lot of states there um, starting to. to to loosen a lot of the restrictions they've got in place when, you know, the unfortunate reality, and I'm no doctor, but the unfortunate reality is that um, they have the most cases in the world. Um, I'm pretty sure they have the most deaths in the world as well. Um, And if you look at the overall tally of of cases in the States, I think the U.S. US makes up uh, a third of cases worldwide. So, I mean, for me, even with the tournament behind closed doors and, you know, you know, no mass gatherings. Um, I, I just, I'm struggling to see how it can go ahead at the moment. But um, I mean, that's certainly if it, if it was me, because um, well, the, I guess the reality is we have such a, uh, an unpredictable person, such an unpredictable yeah. administration leading that country. So it's really difficult for me, um, and I'm sure you're the same, to actually sort of envisage what's going to happen. At the very least, it's going to have to be pushed back. But I guess it comes back to this whole argument of, of when tennis resumes how is it going to work? Are we going to have uh, grand slams postponed to a later date or are we just going to let the calendar run um, as it is? Because we keep saying that, um, yes, the slams are the slams. They're the most important events on the calendar. But, um, you know, can you really say to, for example, a 250 tournament, um, your your event isn't going to run because we need, we need the grand slams to, mm. to move to a different time? Because that's going to then have a flow-on effect for the, the people that would work that tournament like um, umpires like the you know the volunteers um so look it's a really hard one to predict but um i i mean to be honest i'm actually in favor of all the events just staying in their allotted slot yeah um, i really don't like the idea of of of, uh, of tournaments overlapping um uh overlapping others and it's going to be i mean generally speaking how how things um how the atp and the wca and the itf how they go about things once tennis is clear to resume it's going to be it's just going to be really fascinating i think more broadly than the slams that's the that's the the big can of worms that um we probably don't want to open right now because we could talk about it for for ages and ages and we have got daniela to get to but um, i think that's that's really the first thing that um they're going to have to sit down and and talk about
0: yeah i think so as well and you're right about donald trump he's just things are opening too quickly and he's such a He's such a firebrand, I guess, and you don't really know what his next thoughts are going to be. And he was our Benoit of the week for a reason last week with his with his injecting <laughs> yeah. of disinfectant. And he said something during the week that was just mind but I can't remember what it was, but it's just mind-boggling how someone like that can be the leader of the free world, essentially. And, look, this isn't a politics show, yeah. and we're not going to dive into that too much. But it's uh, – yeah, I, I, don't, I can't see the US Open going ahead. And you mentioned tournaments overlapping with Grand Slams and – tournaments changing their dates. Well, it's exactly what the French Open's done. And it's I, I still don't get the, the the decision-making process and why that call was made, because they've essentially just arrogantly placed themselves into another part of the calendar. And we've said this on previous shows, but it, it doesn't need to be that way. And look, I, the Australian Open and Wimbledon have been very smart and with their pandemic insurance. It doesn't seem like the US yeah. Open and French Open have such a thing. And I think that's why they're probably in more of a panic mode saying, this is how much money we're going to lose. And this is the revenue that we're going to lose as well. So why should we have to cancel our tournaments when we're not going to be looked after? And I can perfectly understand that point. Money, money talks at the end of the day and people make their decisions based on yeah. what the best outcome uh, in terms of monetary gain is going to be. So I can understand where they're coming from, but in terms of screwing other tournaments over and other people over, that's exactly what they've done. So I think the decision-making process for the USTA needs to be a little bit more clear-cut than what the FFT has been. And it seems as though they've been a little bit more transparent and the decision will come in mid-June to say what they're going to do. Um, So fingers crossed that that is the right decision. And look, the the Billie Jean King Tennis Centre is a hospital at the moment. I can't see that changing into a Grand Slam in three months. Who knows? It could happen. But... I think this is just such a disaster of a time at the moment for everybody worldwide, so I just think yeah. maybe the bullet just needs to be bitten and and that's it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I guess the other thing is that we don't really know how long um, how long this, this virus can actually last on things like surfaces. And um, I, I guess it's going to take a, a fairly big, um, you know, deep clean for it to turn around. That quickly, and I guess the last thing yeah. I'll say though before we get to Daniela, because I know everyone wants to, to hear from her, and we want to hear from her again because it was just such a good chat. But um, I think generally speaking, um, postponement just doesn't work in tennis.
0: No, nah. um, well, no, you're 20, right. It 20, does. 20. It doesn't work at yeah. all because this the tournament goes. The, sorry, the calendar goes for fifty or forty-eight weeks a year, or maybe forty-nine. There's three weeks that they get off a year. Three weeks. And some get a bit more because of the yeah. off season, like players finish up a little bit earlier with the world, with the ATP, WTA finals, and and the Davis Cup. But it just it needs you can't postpone tennis tournaments. And we said that with Indian Wells, we said when that was cancelled, that's done for the year. It's not going to be played. Yeah. And everybody's mm-hmm. come to that reality now. And you're 100 percent right. Postponing tournaments does not work in tennis because of just how jam-packed the calendar is. Maybe they're going to have a look at the calendars over the next few years to see if something like this does happen again. Can they afford to postpone tournaments? Um, that, that could be an idea. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, you know, players can choose when they want to play. It's, you know, they don't have to play every week. It's going to be advantageous for you if you do, but you don't have to. So, uh, yeah, I'm of the opinion that don't postpone tournaments, just cancel them. This is a global disaster. You're going to be back next year. It's unfortunately for the French, Wimbledon and the US. They haven't got their tournaments out this year. Wimbledon's fine with their insurance, but the French and US, they just can't go ahead. I I don't see a reason for them to go ahead. International travel's not going to be right by September. So what's the point? Yeah, well said. Now, Joel, our next guest is one of the most prodigious talents ever to hit the WTA. She's a former World number 5, a two-time Indian Wells winner, a Fed Cup winner. She's won the career Grand Slam in mixed doubles. She's a three-time Olympian, and now she's become one of the best analysts and commentators in tennis. I speak of none other than Daniela Hontakova, who joins us from Florida in the USA. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us. That is one of the most impressive resumes I've ever seen in tennis.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure and uh, yeah, it's always nice to remember all those beautiful moments on the tennis court and uh, really grateful to be still around uh, the sport that I love so much. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been in my DNA and I know it's going to be there for the rest of my life. So I'm really blessed to, to be part of tennis.
0: And just quickly, you're in um, the USA at the moment. How are things going with um, with coronavirus over there and um, and how's the general vibe?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, it's, I think, uh, you know, it's been said so many times, we are all in this uh, together, and it's been the same for everyone, maybe, you know, like, unlike other parts of the world, but I guess the weather is now getting better, I guess, everywhere, except you guys, no, for you guys, it's winter, No, yeah, so.
0: we're getting into winter now, yeah. so it's <laughs> yeah. starting to get a lot colder.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's just nice to be able to go outside when we can, and just get the fresh air, and, uh I really feel I, I just can't imagine how I would deal with having to be in an apartment and just really like locked down. Like I, I would literally go, go crazy. So, uh, yeah, I, a lot of respect for, for those that, who have to deal with that. So yeah, it's been, it's been great because, uh, people, you know, go for a run, take their bikes out when they can. And obviously still respecting all, all the rules that, uh, they're in place, but um, at the same time, trying to get as fresh as much fresh air as possible.
0: Yeah, I think that's been the big challenge for, for everybody at the moment. But um, moving back to, to what you said about tennis being your part of your DNA. And you mentioned DNA. That's the name of your new podcast, The Real DNA. And you've just started that. You've done two episodes. Um, the first one in English aired the other day with Darren Cahill. And tell us a little bit about that and what made you want to get the podcast started?
2: Yeah, look, it's something I wanted to do for such a long time because I just uh, love communicating uh, with people. I think it's one of the biggest gifts we've got uh, that we can learn so much from each other. And that's just by listening to, you know, to such inspiring stories of people I I have in my life. And I've been so blessed with meeting so many incredible, incredible human beings uh, on my way through the tennis world. And uh, now in, in other things as well. So I, I always, I knew I always wanted to do this. It's just, I never had really time because with the TV, obviously the, the hours are so long and I just didn't have energy for that. So, you know, when things started to look like, you know, a lot of the stuff is going to be canceled. I was like, okay, let's, let's get onto this because uh, it's been really like a, like my small project. And it's, it's just so nice to, to see it grow and look, you know, having. Darren, as uh, my first uh, guest, was something very special, you know, he, he, he really made that show and I'm so grateful that uh, he joined me.
1: Podcasting seems to be the way to go for, uh, for bored uh, tennis fans stuck in isolation, but um, the, the, the podcast, Danielle, all about, uh, I guess, core values and how uh, people approach things, so to be remiss of us not to ask, what are some of uh, your core values that you've lived by through tennis and, and now in your post-career?
2: Yeah, look, it's uh, one of the things that I've been very blessed with my parents that they always were focused on the fact that no matter how good or bad you become in sports, you know, there is so much more outside of that. And uh, at the end of the day, it's about who we become as human beings. And to me, you know, that's just uh, respecting others. You know, it's, it's pretty much the simple things being polite saying um, hello goodbye thank you um and just uh also to me one of the really important ones is that do what you say you're gonna do and i try to live by that so i just um i just like to to say and do things that i know i i am allow able to do um to me that's one of the biggest ones I think that comes together with trust as well trusting others trusting myself and just the overall respect um, of the world of other people of myself I think those are the basic ones for me
1: I think the most uh, impressive thing for me about your tennis career was that you were able to get it done both in singles and in doubles as well and um, I, I don't think a lot of people really understand, um, I guess, the, the nuances, the different nuances between singles and, and doubles and what it takes to, to go from singles one day to doubles the next day and be able to be successful in both. So can you sort of give us a bit of an insight into how you approach both those tours?
2: I wouldn't say you go from one day to another day. Actually, it was in, in Melbourne. I remember one day I had to play singles, doubles and mixed doubles in one day.
1: Oh, wow.
0: God, <laughs> oh, are you <laughs> so, serious?
2: Serious. I spent I think literally around nine hours on the court and that's where I realized like okay I think I'm done with the mixed doubles (laughs) because I was you know I was not getting any younger and I just like literally at the end of the day I closed my eyes and all I could see was tennis balls so um, I I feel like personally it has helped me so much especially playing the mixed doubles because ever since young age I got to a return main serve, you know, against Brian brothers when, you know, they're serving 200 miles in the case uh, k- at you. So I think it was so good for my singles game in doubles. I've been very, very lucky to have such amazing partners as I Martina Higgis who helped me so much with my singles games as well, especially from, I, I, you know, having the Japanese attitude near me, it was unbelievable because, you know, talking about core values and how to respect others. I started to play with her when I was like 18, 19. And I've, I mean, she just gave me such a beautiful path to follow. I spoke to her the other day. I mean, we, we tried to catch up uh, till today because we just became such a good friend. So I I, I think it's uh, such a cool way to make it more fun, you know, because sometimes the tour can be very lonely and being out there with your doubles partner or mixed, mixed doubles partner, it just makes it more enjoyable. And, you know, instead of having to practice you just go out there and play another match. So that's how I was looking at it. At the beginning, obviously, when you get older, you have to be a little bit more wise um, with where you choose to play that because obviously you don't have as much energy as when uh, you're 17, 18.
0: No, exactly right. And you mentioned Martina Hingis, and um, I was reading an article saying that you were actually the reason that she came out of retirement, that you were the one that convinced her to to come out of retirement. Tell, Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, obviously, at the end of the day, she had to make the decision, but we made it in uh, French Open. She was coaching uh, Lucy Safarova and uh, Pavluchenkova at that time uh, in doubles. And she was like, you know what, I I wish so much to be out there and, you know, playing the game. I'm enjoying so much, you know, working with these girls and I feel like I could still do it. I'm like... (laughs) Well, why don't you? <laughs> like, well, what are you waiting for? Like, uh, you know, I, I give you one month. You decide and wherever you want to start, I, I'm here. So uh, literally in one month, she she uh, texted me like, Hey, I think I'm ready. And uh, the first one, first tournament we played, I think was San Diego. Yes. And I mean, right away from the start. I mean, she was so sharp and, you know, she's, she's one of the most special players we ever had and, I mean, if she if she still wanted, she would be still playing now and being probably top five in doubles. That's how that's how good she is. Well,
0: yeah, when she came back, her doubles career just skyrocketed. She was in the finals of slams and just absolutely destroying everybody. But one big thing for you with Martina Hingis was back in two thousand and two when you beat her in the Indian Wells final, and that was your first that was your first career title. And what what a place to do it at such a massive event. They often call it the fifth slam. And what do you remember of the day? Oh
2: wow! Well, it was. To start with, it was one of the special days for many reasons, but one that I had a feeling that I never, ever had after that ever again. But um, with all my respect to Martina, obviously she was number one in the world. She, I remember she beat Monica Seles in the semis, six love six one. That's how good she was playing. <laughs> and I don't know what it was. For some reason, I woke up that morning and I just felt like I knew I was going to win which was crazy, because it was my first final, playing my hero, playing number one in the world. So there was no reason to think that, but you know, it was one of those days that I will never forget for that. And obviously it was very special um, because of playing her as well. She actually, we practiced a lot before the tournament there and she, she helped me so much to to really see what it takes to be, you know, number one in the world and her intensity in practice. So. We spent a lot of hours on the court, and probably that had something to do with how well I played in the finals. Then, so maybe she may regret that a little bit. Um, and it was special; I had uh, I had my parents flying over to to see me um, because that was my dream to have them both uh, for my first final. And like you said, to do it in Indian Wells, uh, if, you know, I, if I could pick any other tournament outside the Slam to win, definitely that one.
1: And that was a big time in your career, of course, Daniela, because uh, Slovakia won the Fed Cup as well against Spain in uh, in two thousand and two. How does winning a, a major trophy for your country compare to to winning one for yourself?
2: Oh, I would say that probably meant even more so because, like, like you mentioned, it's not only winning for yourself but for your entire country. Never happened to Slovakia before or after, so I, I knew we had a huge chance there i remember it was a tough decision to make though because the way the calendar uh was made that year was that the um final ending championships were the week after like literally the tuesday after we finished in la and we were playing in spain in gran canaria so basically playing the fed cup final gave me no chance to you know to have a go at it uh in la which you know was the first time i qualified for this as well so It was a tough tough decision to make, whether I was going to play or not. And then I realized, look, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Slovakia, and I would regret it for the rest of my life. So I went for it, and uh, yeah, it was, again, one of those most probably, I would say, top three definitely most special weeks um, that I ever had.
0: And you you mentioned, like... the winning for your country but you also you won a hotman cup for slovakia in 2005 with dominic jabati and a three-time olympian as well what's um what was what's so special as a tennis player for because you're often representing yourself but what's so special about putting on your your national colors and and representing your country on an international stage
2: um it means the world to me because we are such a small country and, uh, so the, one of the only few ways to make a name for, for us, it's through the sports. And so having the chance and opportunity to make it as visible as possible, you know, thanks to, thanks to tennis and thanks to doing well, it just gave me that extra motivation. And, uh, also, you know, just, just remembering when I'm, where I, where I, where I come from, you know, all my family, friends, uh, Whenever I played Fed Cup or the Olympics or, or the Hoffman Cup, there was always—I mean, my grandmother was a huge part of my career. But whenever I played for Slovakia, it felt like she was literally right there on the court with me. So um, it was always a very special time to to be on the court when I when the Slovakian flag was was on my back.
1: I'm sure you might have seen Daniela, in the last sort of couple of weeks, we've seen the the idea of the uh, a merger uh, floated between the ATP and WTA and. Roger Federer was sort of the biggest sport place behind that. And I guess there's been a bit of mixed opinion from people like, I know we saw Nick Kyrgios he put out his thoughts. Billy Jean King has been a big advocate of that um, for a long time. What's what's your thoughts on that? Do you think they should come together or, or do you sort of prefer it the way things are at the moment?
2: Look, I, I was so, so happy that Darren mentioned it on my podcast as well. And he, he was totally right about it. If there is a time to do that, it's now for any changes that we've been waiting for so many years if they're not going to happen now, then they're never going to happen. So uh I'm absolutely behind that idea. I think together we are much stronger. You know, when people come to a tennis tournament, they buy a ticket and they buy it because they love the sport. Not necessarily, you know, whether it's a men's or women's match. They just want to be part of these incredible events we've got going on. And, you know, like look at the slams. Like it's just, uh I feel like, you know, especially with everything that go, that's going on around the world, you you appreciate that tennis family even more so, and you just wanna have everyone you know talking the same language, and and also the changes that we need to make. It's gonna be much more easy to achieve uh, when we are talking the same language, and uh, I think you know th- this is the time to to reconsider a lot of our values and the things we w- used to do before the virus, and uh, maybe. <laughs> We are more open-minded and just uh, being really humbled about the sport and realizing uh, how how blessed and lucky we are to be part of it in any way. Whether it's the players, whether it's the the media, the the empires, anyone involved with tennis, I think it's a it's a huge privilege and why not to join it and. Uh, And celebrate the
0: sport together um and i I listened to the podcast and darren made some great points about how confusing the tournaments could be for the wta with the with the mandatory and the the premier five and the premiers and i i i got absolutely completely lost in that conversation but the way he (laughs) me too (laughs) the way he explained it was was interesting and i think that he made a good point saying that there's seven different sets of rules ITF ATP WTA and then you've got the four grand slams all who have their own different little nuances and how would you how would you recommend going about making these changes and would you get them all into a room and and just say all right look this is how we're going to do it or would you would you recommend something else
2: well, honestly, like you said, even even for a player, I know this is maybe embarrassing, but 99% of the time I had no idea <laughs> what was going on while I was still playing. So I just told my coaches, like, hey, just tell me where to go. You know what's the best way to, uh, to go about it uh, for my tennis? And I'm going to do that because it was just, uh, it's just, yeah, too, if it's too confusing for players, imagine for, for the rest of the people. So, yeah. yeah, I think the way to go go about it is to have, the same name for every level of the tournament and that's got to be the same for ATP and WTA with the points, with the prize money, with, with all of that. I also agreed with the point what Darren said that I feel like there's too much money on the top and we need to think about giving it to the, you know, lower tournaments, because as we said, some of those small tournaments, the prize money are still the same as 20 years ago, but you know, the hotel prices, the flight tickets and all the expenses are maybe triple that so it's almost impossible for those uh, at the beginning to 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 try to make it
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because that was actually going to be my next question that how tough is it for players coming in now to actually make a name for themselves and you mentioned that in the podcast that you had a lot of hitting partners back in your career where if they had the funding they could have actually made it but um, unfortunately just that lack of funding stopped their career progression
2: yeah uh, totally I mean I could name at least 10 guys that I mean, they had unbelievable talent, just you know, they were not fortunate enough to come from rich families. And I I believe it should, you know, it it should be a sport for everyone, and everyone's got to have the same opportunity. And especially in today's tennis, where it's becoming so much more professional, which is great, but you can't get away with just traveling by yourself, you need a strong team around you, I'm not saying with, at the challenger levels that you need your physio and physical coach every single tournament, but at least you gotta afford to have a decent tennis coach traveling with you and uh, to be able to do that with the prize money they've got at the moment is just impossible.
1: On the note of travelling, Daniela, one thing that we always like to ask uh, former players or current players, whoever it is that we that we talk to, is um, on their travels in their career, what's what's the most daunting place they've had to go, or what's the strangest place where things have been a little bit tougher?
0: Don't say ooh. Melbourne.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Oh, uh, Melbourne is my, one of my favourites. Uh, oh. I guess I will have to go like back to the junior play, uh, junior times. Uh, uh well, I'll tell you what, um, it was not one of the strangest place, but one of the most, I would say it was the strongest experiences. And that's when I went to play in Kolkata in India mm-hmm. for many reasons. First, before I got there, um, my flights got canceled. I I got there somewhere on like Wednesday during the night and Thursday was the latest. I could start playing the tournament and I was going on about how I didn't have the right preparation. And you know, it's, uh, you know, the perfectionism started to come out of me. And then I remember we took one ride from the hotel to the courts with my mom. I never said the word after that, making me realize that, you know, when you see the poverty with your own eyes, Mm. I'm like, I, Am I really complaining about something I've actually I felt I felt so bad about myself like Danny like really Um, so it was it was it was a very strong message to myself and It changed my mindset big time from that moment um, I remember for the next At least six months I was like the most behaved person on the court never ever complained about anything my coaches were like what happened to her (laughs) I had like the best results after that because I just realized that you know we are so lucky to play this sport and there's so many other things outside that we don't even have an idea as a player you know we I always kept saying that we we live in a kind of a bubble and there is not too much to do with the reality of the world and to me when i got there i was like wow okay you know it was it was a strong one and i would recommend every tennis player to to go to a place like that and then appreciate what they've got
1: mm. yeah that's a wonderful story and i guess considering we've heard the, the i suppose the tougher the tougher story how about your favorite places obviously you you mentioned melbourne and we love that but say, <laughs> is there a one place that really sticks out for you as your favorite
2: well, honestly, I'm not saying that just because I'm talking to you guys, but for any European person, I think the fact that we we see that light in the tunnel, you know, having to suffer the the cold, knowing that in January we're gonna be in Australia, it's it's it's, it's the best way to to kick off the year. Uh, honestly, I can't imagine I would be anywhere else. Um, Good answer. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, other than that, well uh cape town's been one of my favorites for many years uh obviously i love rome Uh, i mean you know there's indian was it's going to be always very special uh but i gotta say i I love being in slovakia as well it's it's just nice to be back and uh, i guess you know when you when you're happy it doesn't really matter where where you are but it's more about who you with and how you're spending your time
0: Really well said and, and you mentioned when you're happy and you we talked about your win over Hingis. What, what's your best, the best win of your career to date?
2: Uh, it's a match that not too many people would think. I would say it's uh, um, against Justin Hanna in the US Open, getting to my first quarters because I uh, won the first at 6-1 and after that I kind of went over my ankle, uh, almost broke my finger. Then we had to like stop for two days. We played played that match for three, almost three days. Won seven six in the third, but it it just showed me that was like the first sign. I think I was eighteen that you know I can do it, and it gave me so much confidence. And it's just because of all the circumstances that I had to go through that match. uh, That was that was like the toughest match I had to go through. So that meant a lot to me.
1: When it comes to your uh, media career, Daniela, obviously, uh, I think you've worked with uh, ESPN and also uh, Amazon Prime as well, Amazon Prime Tennis Channel. Um, yeah, I guess what's um, what's that been like for you for you so far? I guess it's it's similar in, in that you get to sort of go to some some nice places. But um, are you enjoying that that part of uh, that part of your life as well? Uh, I
2: am, even though I gotta say it's so much harder than playing. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I, I only players that are on. On, I would say my side <laughs> uh, would understand that because it's just you know, like the hours are very very long and mentally it's just very demanding and you don't get to move like you're used to on the court so the combination of all of this just makes it really tough so that little bit surprised me at the beginning but having said that I absolutely love it uh, right from the start it was actually a nice way to retire and start the broadcasting but the 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 very same day, so um I've been very lucky also with the the people I've been working uh with, so I have a great team around me, and that makes the difference then you know when you wake up and you're looking forward to to come to your office i'm I'm sure you know you guys feel the same, so it's just nice to be part of of the of the game in any way.
0: Yeah, well, Daniela, the media career is absolutely blossoming. The podcast is fantastic, and where where can we find it? And uh, and just run us through that again.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, you can download it. Uh, you can subscribe on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and basically any podcast places where where you you can get it from. And um, yeah, I've been very lucky and blessed with all my guests so far. We've got Ivan Lendl coming out as the next one, and I've you know just listening to their stories. I've learned so much over the past few weeks, just being able to 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 see what it took them where they are, and you know their values, their DNA, and it's, it's been very inspiring process for me. Obviously, in the future, I'm looking forward to be able to do that in person, because it's just so different, yeah. you know. Say, yeah. you, you know that yep. about to to catch the real real emotions so it's been kind of a challenge but uh again just uh, it's been yeah it's been a lot of work too like you know <laughs> i don't need to tell you guys yeah. a lot of preparation but um, yeah just uh just a new experience and i'm just so so happy to be able to to share that with anyone that um, enjoys tennis
0: well it sounds great daniela we can't wait for the yvonne lendl episode and thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and it's just been an unbelievable thrill to chat to a player of your caliber and someone that's been inside the top 10 it's been a real thrill and uh thank you very much for for joining us today
2: thank you so much for having me and stay safe and healthy that's the number one thing right now
0: Daniela Hunter Cover there on Breakpoint Podcast. And remember, you can follow and subscribe to the Real DNA Podcast on Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify and wherever you need to get your podcast from. As you can do here on Breakpoint, you, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Twitter and Insta is at Breakpoint Pod, and Facebook is at Breakpoint Pod 1 or Breakpoint Podcast. Just search that there and give us a like or a subscribe. Joel, how good was that chat?
1: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, I guess some of the some of the stories that she had to tell were were incredible. Um, uh, the one that really stood out for me, that sort of gripped my attention, was uh, when uh, she was talking about when she went to, to India and um, you know she was having a bit of a, a, a bit of a winch, um, and uh, in the end she was just absorbing what was going on around her, and then just didn't talk for the. I think she was saying the rest of the yeah. the rest of the drive. I, I found that really, really, uh, really, really interesting, and um, you know, I guess it probably just. It gives us a bit of uh, a bit of perspective, but yeah, the real sort of juice of it, and I'm sure the the issue that we were most interested in, though, was uh, her thoughts on on the merger, the ATP and the WTA that's been floated. And um, I, I guess what really stood out for me was that um, her her argument was really, or uh, well, one of them anyway, was um, much much the same as uh, what what Billie Jean King has been saying, and that's um, by bringing the two tours together, you have a more valuable tennis product Um, and in Daniella's words um, when we go along to the tennis we don't necessarily buy tickets because we want to see men's or women's tennis we want to we want to watch tennis because we love tennis so Mm -hmm. you know that was I think that was a perfectly valid argument of course there's a lot of um, different branches to to sort of work out but um, I think when you look at it from from that perspective um, it certainly makes sense when you look at tennis as as a product um, that wants to deliver entertainment really and compete with other sports lot to, to a, you know, a massive, massive
0: global audience. And look, I do agree. I, I think that the, the product, the product is tennis. That's, that's what we're, that's what we're here to try to achieve as tennis media, as tennis players, as tennis fans. We want the game to grow and we want everybody to see and experience what we love about the game. And that's where, that's where I think this does work, the merger. But as we both said a little bit of work still needs to, or a lot of work still needs to go into making this happen and making this a reality. But the crux of the argument is so valid and so good that I think it will happen in the future. And it, it's just, it, and that, and that's the thing. We do buy tickets to go to the tennis and we go watch whoever we want to play or whoever we want to watch. And that's it. We're fans in the end of the day, even the media, even the, the players are still all fans of the game. At the same time because they've all got their players that they love to watch and that they love to talk about and that got them into the game and and made them pick up a racket so I think this does work in the future maybe not and as, as we've said not right now but it could work and it could be so beneficial for the sport and I hope it is but yeah what she said does make a lot of sense so fingers crossed that something in the future does happen but yeah, um, it's a very, very interesting discussion that I'm sure we haven't had the last of on this podcast. But another quick one before we do move on, the, the the team tennis. She mentioned how much she loved playing for Slovakia and at the Olympics and at Fed Cup level. Is there more place for team tennis in the sport?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, Val. Um, I think certainly, um, and, and again, I guess this could be another potential argument maybe for for the, the combined tours because we've got more team tennis on the men's side than we do on the women's side um of course on the men's we've got davis cup and um the atp cup as well um i think on the men's side i think we're we're kind of covered for team team tennis um and of course with the labor cup as well um i, I think the men's side is, is fairly well covered we've got a few different concepts there um, the ATP Cup was, of course, one of the only tournaments really to go ahead or major tournaments to go ahead this year. And yeah, I, I mean, for me, it was a raging success. Um, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Um, so I think the, the men, I think the men's side is, is covered, but potentially, I mean, you know, I think, I think maybe the women's side, um, could potentially use, um, a bit more. But that said, I guess the counter argument, um, and I really do believe this because the ATP Cup for me really did dilute the Davis Cup and it didn't help, um, it didn't help that the actual structure of the event was reformed, which um, I know you and I are both not really fans of, of course, uh, from my yeah. old mate Gerard Piquet. But um, I think I think the the really uh, key argument for me against adding another or well, adding more tennis to the women's side is you have that potential to die with the Fed Cup, um, and I mean we 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 got to experience the Fed Cup not necessarily in the flesh, but we were really uh, engrossed in it last year because uh, of course. Um, Australia made the final against uh, against France. Yeah. And um, unfortunately for us, they, they couldn't quite get the job done. But um, you know, we, we really saw the, the passion come out um, into those courts um, where it was played. So I think when you look at it from that respect, I think it's important not, not to dilute those, those um, events where you are playing for your country because I think the more of them you bring in, um, the less valuable um, it is for players because there's not really – a lot of it, and it really does increase the value of pulling on those colours for your country. So I think if, um, if you add too much of it, um, then, um, you know, it sort of loses that mistake and that's not really what we want.
0: No, I agree 100%. So And, like, the Davis Cup was awful last year. It was absolutely horrible. Didn't enjoy it. But the Australia mm. got to the quarterfinals. That's all. And Spain won. That's all I could tell you about it. All I could tell you. The crowds weren't there. Spain, of course, the home country won. Like, it's... Yeah. Like, there's just no – like, there was no point. ATP Cup was so much better, so much better. The crowds were more vocal. Um, It it was just – it was brilliant. So, they need to go back to the old Davis Cup reform. ATP Cup can be its own separate entity. Davis Cup just needs to change. That's all I can say on the matter. But, Joel, we better better push on because we did have this. We wanted to talk about – now, Daniela was such a – she was a child prodigy in tennis. She came on at a really young age and did well straight away. We want to talk about the child prodigies that have gone on to do good things but were really really touted as top children in the sport. Now, and we'll go through the top 5 men, which I'll do and the top 5 women which you'll go through before we get to the Benoir of the week. But let's start with the the females and and who the top 5 sort of child prodigies have been.
1: Yeah, so number five, I've got uh, Coco Goff. So, obviously, yeah. she's a very recent one. But, um, I mean, we all know about, about Coco and what she's achieved um, so far at, uh, at just 15 years old. Already two, uh, two uh, wins, two grand flame wins against Venus Williams. So, um, you know, we expect that um, she was, was one of Coco's heroes really growing yeah, up. Yeah, she and, was. And and, and and on that very note, we say when she was growing up, she's still growing up. She's 15. I mean, <laughs> how about that? I know. And, um, oh, you know, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's insane, and um, you know she's already making waves already, and um, we we just hope that uh, I guess people don't put too much pressure on her because we want her, um, to to really thrive um, and, and just just keep going and not yep. be bogged down by all that pressure.
0: No, hundred percent. She's she's an absolutely wonderful player, and fingers crossed that she's gonna she's gonna overcome all that pressure that's on her. And yeah, she she was devastated after losing in the US Open to Naomi Osaka, and Osaka gave her some good advice, saying it's better not to let them see you cry. Um, just go and do it in the locker room, and she's still learning. She's mm. fifteen years old. Like even, even I'm nine years older than she is, which is which is scary. So, it's, so I <laughs> yeah. don't want to think about that. Let's just keep going.
1: Yeah, number four, uh, I've picked Jennifer Capriati. Now she turned pro at thirteen, which is an unbelievable thought. So turning pro at thirteen on the on the tennis tour, amazing. She's a former world number one, of course, triple grand slam champion, um, and made an additional six uh, semifinals. So she had a wonderful career. Um, but just the fact uh, how how early she she became a professional, it's uh, it's just staggering. Though, what were you doing at thirteen?
0: Uh, I was in year eight at school. Was I? No. Yes, I was in That's year right. eight. So, yeah, yeah, I wasn't really yeah, doing much.
1: Stuff up on a Bunsen burner. Yeah, yeah, it, pretty much.
0: Yeah, the Bunsen <laughs> burner was. Uh, I wasn't very good at science, so it was more. Jeez, yeah. Let's God, thirteen years old. <laughs> oh, not a worry in the world.
1: Mm. Not a worry uh, in number the world. Three comes Maria Sharapova. Of course, we all know what uh, what Maria achieved, and uh, she really broke uh, broke onto the scene uh, at a pretty young age. Um, turned pro on her fourteenth birthday, which is uh, which is pretty interesting. When I was uh, having a look at this, that was an interesting little fact. But of course, won her first Grand Slam as a seventeen year old at Wimbledon in, in two thousand four. Um, and then went on um, to win uh, a career slam, and she won the French Open twice. So, uh, you know, I think uh, we don't need to say a whole lot about Maria. She had a, an incredible career, and um, you know, unfortunately, it was a little bit tarnished towards the end. But um, you know, when you look at those figures, uh, I guess we have to really sort of respect what she was able to achieve and, uh, and achieve so early as well.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. She was a wonderful. She still was a great player on the WTA. And look, opinions of her have changed in the last few years, but it doesn't It doesn't sort of diminish what she did earlier on in her career?
1: At number two, we heard uh, a lot about this uh, this lady uh, when we spoke to Daniela, Martina Hingis, uh, the youngest Grand Slam winner ever, winning the 1996 Wimbledon doubles with uh, Helena Sukhova at 15 years and nine months. How's that? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, she became uh, the 20th century's youngest single slam winner, defeating Mary Pierce at the Australian Open in 1997, uh, then won three of the four slams in singles um, and has a career slam in both doubles and mixed doubles. So Martina, as we know, has achieved plenty. And, um, we, you know, we often overlook doubles, don't we? But, um, you know, when uh, when we go uh, and dip, dip our feet beyond singles, uh, it's a very, very, very impressive season.
0: Yeah, oh, 100%. She's just... Martina Hingis is done. If it wasn't for Roger Federer, she'd be Switzerland's greatest uh, greatest tennis export um so yeah what a wonderful custodian of the sport for her country um on the on the female side anyway but also the men's uh you're number one
1: yeah our top uh, female child prodigy well it, it really had to be her we, we couldn't talk about the women without uh naming serena williams um started playing uh, at five years old and um the rest is history isn't it yeah 23 <laughs> I mean, slams really, And 23 slams, and uh, without question, the greatest female I think we will ever see. I don't think we're ever going to see a female player quite as good as Serena.
0: No, I don't think so either, and what she's done in such a competitive era, she's just dominated it. So, brilliant from you there, Joel. Um, Mine, with the men, I haven't gone any of the big three, because they're pretty obvious. So, let's let's not get... Because there's footage of all three of them from when they were kids, and especially... Um, Roger and Rafa their form early on was, was quite good So especially Rafa so let's not go with any of them I'll start with my number 5 Alexander Zverev massive results ahead of his time semifinals in Hamburg as a 17 year old which is a 500 event played David Ferrer there but played his first ATP qualifying event at 14 years old and was an Australian nice. Open junior champion in 2014 which I just find unbelievable
1: yeah it is it is and yeah, you know, I guess the unfortunate thing with Alex, um, and you know, we were talking about Coco Golf how she's still growing up. I almost feel as though Alex Verre is still growing up a little bit as well. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly uh, age-wise, a lot more mature and um, you know, strength and body-wise as well. But um, yeah, I, I think I think Alex just needs to um, just needs to settle a little bit more. But um, you know, obviously, um, needless to say um, how much talent he, he has, um, and the ranking reflects yeah. like that, doesn't it?
0: He's still only 22 years old, so I think he'll be fine. Yeah. Um my number four, Boris. Yeah, pardon. Well, for,
1: for, for, for still.
0: Exactly, exactly. My number four, Boris Becker, need we say more, won Wimbledon at 17. Crazy. Uh number three, Leighton Hewitt. Never won a junior grand slam, but was an ATP titleist in Adelaide at just 16 years old, beat Agassi in that tournament on Agassi's comeback trail and um, still remains the youngest world number one in history. So, um, yeah, what a wonderful player he was, Leighton Hewitt, one of my all-time favourites. Gael Monfils, number two, touted as a top player and won the first three Junior Grand Slams of 2004, sheer dominance in terms of talent and shot-making. He was always up there as a child and still will be up there with the best of the ATP. And my number one, now, a lot of people wouldn't really know too much about this, but Richard Gasquet was one of the most top-touted junior players in history that I've ever seen and I've read about. He was in French magazines at probably 13, 14 years old, saying this guy's a future Grand Slam champion and a future world number one. Aesthetically, he's a great player to watch. The backhand is just unbelievable. Um, no junior slams. But he was also won his first on ATP debut in Monte Carlo, at Masters 1000 as well, just 15 years old, and he's beaten Franco Squillari before falling to Marit Safin. So wins a Masters 1000 match in his first ATP career match. Um, and the rest is history. He's got to world number seven, a few Grand Slam semifinals here and there, and a few ATP titles along the way. Never really cracked in and got to where he thought or where everybody thought he was going to get, but still a mighty fine career that's still going at the moment. He's only 33. It feels like he's been around forever.
1: Yeah, it does feel like it has been around forever. And uh, I'll tell you what, Val, you mentioned it there. I will just never tire of that backhand. It is so great to watch. And uh, I mean, when we when we talk of single-handed backhands, um, probably not quite up there with Stan Wawrinka and, and Dominic Thiem is what I think are the uh, undisputed two best one-handers um, in the world. better at, um, at least on the. Me- oh yeah, and Roger as well. He's you know just a small man. Um And even Ash Barty on the women's side um, is is not bad either. Um, Particularly when you look at it
0: in in the context of the women's game. but um, But Barty's got
1: a two-hander, though. Oh, the slice,
0: anyway. Oh, the The slice. slice. No, the slice, Barty Um, uses that. Barty's slice is the best I've ever seen in the women's game. And I know I'm 24 years old, so not much to compare it to from before that. But Hmm. that slice, the way she uses it, that's why she's world number one. Because that is the most underrated shot, I think, in a tennis player's repertoire. Roger uses it so well. Dimitrov uses it well. And players that can use it well, slow up the points and get themselves back to an even playing field in a point, it's it's just it's worth every cent.
1: Yeah, it's it's a gorgeous shot, and um, you know I guess it, it is a bit of a pity, isn't it, that uh, Richard Gasquet never won a slam because uh, he has got the he has got the tricks, has got the shots, um, and we love watching him. But uh, yeah, just unfortunately, uh, goes into that bracket of uh, you know probably uh, a David Ferrer where they. Just couldn't quite get it done, and I mean, who knows? He, he still might get it done. He, he, he hasn't retired yet, but um unlikely, you'd
0: have to say. Yeah, I doubt it. I highly doubt it. Now, a few injuries have plagued him, but uh, that's our top five child prodigies. But finally, now it's. a moment that we like to we like to end the show with and it's our benoit of the week where uh we've had it well it's for anybody that's had a good week and a bad week at the same time or they could have a good week one week and then a bad week the next week just a general fluctuator and um we've had benoit who's our first benoit of the um of the week Novak Djokovic jokovic for his anti-vax donald trump in de- injecting with disinfectant
1: our benoit four joel over to you yeah, so uh, our Benoit four, and we should say uh, before we uh, name our fourth Benoit, um, you know, probably the opening three weeks, other than Benoit himself, the other two probably have been on the, um, I guess, on the more negative end of the spectrum. Yeah. Because who knows what we're going to get from Benoit, right? Yeah. But this week we're going positive because he can be thrilling when he, gets, he steps on court, and there's a reason why he's in the top 30 at the moment. So we're going with the good stuff this week. Yeah. What a though I mean, that is just – Unbelievable series. Anyone that has Netflix, which is most of us, get on there if you haven't seen it. Make sure you start it from the very beginning. Yep. Um, it's just it's just gripping. I've been binging it. Sold my parents.
0: <laughs> yeah, Joel. As of I, I stayed up till twelve thirty last night watching watching Ozark when I should have been preparing for the podcast. So I had to wake up a little bit earlier than I wanted this morning. And um, but you know, what's ISO for rather than watching TV? So um, no, nah, it's it's a brilliant show. I also watched um, Peaky Blinders. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and that's the best show I've seen since Game of Thrones. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's some really good shows to get your teeth stuck into over ISO, but Ozark has been truly phenomenal. I'm a season in, so after this is done today, guess what I'm doing for the rest of the afternoon?
1: Straight back on it.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. So we better push on and uh, and finish up the show, so I can get to Ozark. Um, but Joel, thank you very much for for your efforts today. It's been brilliant. And um, how good was the chat with Daniella
1: Yeah, brilliant. And um, yeah, enjoy Ozark well. Um, hopefully next week as well, we'll we'll come back with uh, with another guest. We're trying to we're trying to get them on um, yep. thick and fast here on uh, on, on Breakpoint. So uh, we'll try and get one for for our listeners. But um, in the meantime. Um, to you and all the listeners, yeah, get um get get stuck in and join Netflix.
0: Yep, exactly right. And I uh, wish Netflix could sponsor us because uh, we've given them a massive plug today. But um, no, thanks very much, Joel. It's been awesome, and um, I'll catch you next week. And to the listeners, stay safe. Um, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, you can follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Please subscribe. Please like. Uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, It's our pleasure to bring the weekly tennis news to you. I've been Val Febo, Joel Frucci, down the other end of the line. And it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll catch you all next week for some more tennis chat.